Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, we will be talking about the case that has pretty much everyone in the movement talking. Wayne Shang and John Fraunmeyer will be here to discuss the prosecution of Wayne, along with his co-defendant, Paul Picklesheimer, for entering a huge Smithfield factory farm in Utah, and while there, rescuing two sick piglets. The trial is set to begin very, very soon in early October. Before we get to that interview, I just want to mention that I really hope that you're also checking out the Our Hen House podcast, which, of course, I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. Recent episodes include interviews with Ukrainian animal rights advocate Tamara Human, who tells us what it's like to do vegan outreach in the midst of a war, bodybuilder Tori Washington focusing on the roots of his veganism and animal rights perspective in Rastafarianism, Jasmine's terrific interview with Amy Lubert, who is bringing extraordinary grassroots energy to the fight for animals and anti-racism in Des Moines, Iowa, and my interview with Rachel McChrystal and Hervé Broy of Woodstock Animal Sanctuary about the Joint Sanctuary Campaign to bring attention to the horrors visited upon animals at state and county fairs. We have a lot going on. Uh, so I'll also take a moment to ask for your support for the Animal Law Podcast and the Our Hen House Podcast. If you're in a place where you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount you're comfortable with, and we would be so very grateful for that. So let's get to the interview. Wayne Shung is a lawyer, former faculty member at Northwestern School of Law, former lead organizer of the Global Animal Rights Network, Direct Action Everywhere, and co-founder of the Sanctuary Initiative. He has led teams that have rescued dozens of animals from factory farms and has organized successful campaigns to ban fur in San Francisco and California. He faces decades in prison for challenging so-called ag-ag laws across the nation and removing animals from labs, slaughterhouses, and farms, so-called farms, for veterinary care. His work as an open rescue activist has been reported on in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, ABC's Nightline. Wayne published research with Cass Sunstein on climate change's impact on wildlife, practiced law at two national firms, and had an active pro bono practice defending victims of domestic violence. John Fronmeyer is an attorney and activist with Direct Action Everywhere. He graduated from Stanford University and the University of Oregon School of Law, where he was editor-in-chief of the Oregon Law Review and president of the Student Animal Legal Defense Fund. He worked for several years doing transactional law before moving into animal rights, and they will both be joining me right after this. A new release from the Brooks Institute Animal Law Fundamentals series is now available, Wildlife, Related Acts and State Management Issues by Eric Glitzenstein. Animal Law Fundamentals is a documentary-style series of video presentations and scholarly papers presented by notable North American animal law scholars. Each presentation covers a new topic and enables the public to have access to premier subject matter experts at no cost. The easy-to-digest video format lets viewers orient themselves and gain a quick substantive overview on animal law, while the accompanying paper serves as an opportunity to, quote, dive deep into each installment's topic. The full series and upcoming roster can be found at thebrooksinstitute.org slash animal hyphen law hyphen fundamentals. Registration is open for the Animal Law Conference, 
November 4th through 6th in Portland, Oregon. Co-hosted by the Animal Legal Defense Fund and the Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark Law School, this year's conference marks the 30th anniversary of this premier animal law event. Returning to the veg-friendly oasis of Portland, Oregon, the conference features discussions with animal law experts across multiple disciplines. Join in person, live stream the event from the comfort of your home, or watch the sessions anytime on demand after the event. Special guest Miyoko Schinner, the founder and CEO of Miyoko's Creamery, will deliver an inspiring keynote address and CLE credits will be available to attorneys, including ethics credits. Registration is now open. Don't miss your chance to join the conversation and immerse yourself in the community. For more information, visit animallawconference.org. That's animallawconference.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Wayne and John. Thanks so much for having us. Glad to be on the show, man. I am really delighted to have you, John, and to have you back, Wayne. And I think most of our listeners are at least somewhat familiar. Probably a lot of them are very familiar with what happened in this case. And I'm really eager to get to the legal issues. But but can you just start out by briefly telling the story? What, what happened here? Yeah, so January 2007, Smithfield made a commitment to and the use of gestation crates within 10 years. January 2017, the deadline was hit and we decided to check out what the facilities were actually looking like because we had heard both from whistleblowers inside the company and from satellite imagery that we had been reviewing, we suspected that there was not much change. And so we went to their single largest farm in Southern Utah called Circle Four Farms, took a look inside and guess what we found? Row after row after row of gestation crate. In fact. I think in the many, many occasions we visited Smithfield Farms from January 2017 all the way through March of 2018, I don't think we ever saw a single mother pig inside a group housing facility, despite the fact that they publicly stated that they had fulfilled their commitment. But the reason we're being charged, at least you know in theory, is because in the process of the investigation, we saw two little baby piglets, both of whom were on the brink of starvation. One of them had a foot the size of a golf ball a little claw that was swollen up three times its, its normal size because of an infection and a wound, and we took her to the vet. And for that reason, we're being charged with two counts of burglary, one count of theft for two piglets removed and face up to 11 years in prison. Originally, five of us were charged, myself included. And in October of 2018, three of us took a plea deal uh, that was just a, a plea in abeyance to two misdemeanors, I think, and it included the stipulation originally for all three of us, that we would have to scrub our social media of any criticism of Smithfield and that we could not further criticize Smithfield. And my lawyer, I think, wisely pushed back on that term and it was changed to, I couldn't harass Smithfield. Only for you though, John, the other two were bound to not criticize Smithfield. Exactly. So I think that tells you a little bit about what the underlying motivations for the prosecution are. Yeah, I guess I should also add, I mean, if we're talking about the motivations of the prosecution, like the CEO of Costco, the highest levels of the American food food system were involved in reporting this crime to the FBI because the only reason they found out about the removal of piglets is because we openly published what we did. We created a virtual reality documentary. It's about 14, 13 minutes, I think it is. Gave it to the New York Times, posted it on YouTube um, and showed us both documenting the conditions and removing the piglets. And when we went to Costco, when that was published, because Costco is a big buyer from Smithfield and said, hey, you've been promising mother pigs the five freedoms, including the freedom to engage in natural behavior. A mother pig trapped in a two foot by seven foot crate 
when the company has been claiming that they're not trapped in these crates is both fraudulent and is inconsistent with the five freedoms. Instead of trying to do something about it, the Costco CEO reported what we had done to the FBI. Yeah, John, I know you are an attorney, but your role here, you're not representing either of the defendants. Is that right? Correct. Yes, I'm, I'm not attorney of record for either Wayne or Paul. I am on uh, DXC's legal team, have been since March of 2017. And so I've been I, I've been doing what I can just as a j- just to help the attorneys who are attorneys of record. John is deeply, deeply involved. He's like the brains behind the operation. At least a lot of <laughs> a lot of our most creative strategies are John's ideas. I have definitely been trying to to help these two win because they they should win. And the other defendant against whom charges are pending is Paul Picklesheimer. Is that right? Yeah, great guy. That video you were talking about, that's that's the that's what's called the Death Star video in these papers, right? And that that was the one that was put online and also caught the attention of as you said of the New York Times. Yeah, we called it Operation Death Star. Uh partly because the production company we were working with liked that name, and partly because I thought the metaphor was just a good one. When you think about a factory farm, you know, most people think, okay, maybe it's cool to animals, but we, we have to do this and we need a cheap system of food production. And we don't realize it's not just bad for the animals. It really is incredibly destructive to the local community and, and the entire planet. I mean, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, there have been a number of studies recently showing that greenhouse gas emissions, in particular methane from places like Circle 4, are increasingly catastrophic for human civilization. And the people immediately in the vicinity of these factory farms see it first and foremost because they're the ones who are dealing with the smell, the disease, um, even just like the feces that are sometimes sprayed onto their their school playgrounds and their neighborhood churches. Because when you have 1.2 million pigs in a county of 5,000 people, there's a lot of poop that gets on a lot of people's stuff. So I know that some charges were dismissed uh, earlier in this case. I, and I wasn't clear whether you wanted to address those charges or just move on and talk about the charges that remain. Yeah, I don't know if Wayne has an opinion on this. I mean, I, I think the, the fact that the charges were dismissed and the reason they were dismissed is very, very interesting and, and very relevant. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, the well, the two additional charges were basically rioting and racketeering. And I don't know if it was it both of them that depended on the quote unquote victim being a lawful operation. And our attorneys pushed back on that and they said, no, these are this is a, a, a criminal enterprise. It's committing systematic animal cruelty. And so those two charges shouldn't apply. And I think we asked for, for discovery to that effect. And instead of providing it and substantiating its claim, the, the prosecution's claim that Smithfield is a lawful, lawful operation, they just decided to take those two charges out and, and stick with the burglary and theft. I think it was just the rioting charge that had the, the lawful enterprise provision. It was disruption of a lawful enterprise. The The other... The other charge that related to lawful enterprise was the animal cruelty enhancement. Originally, we were charged with felony burglary and and misdemeanor theft, and there was an animal cruelty enhancement that made them more serious felonies. But it it required proof that we had committed a burglary or theft against a lawful animal enterprise. So the rioting charge required disruption of a lawful enterprise. And then the animal cruelty enhancements, I think, required crime against a lawful animal enterprise. The racketeering charge was the most serious charge, though. And... It was, as anyone who knows racketeering charges will say, it was very, very convoluted and involved massive constellation of evidence, and much of which I think you know the prosecution realized they just couldn't prove. 
So one of the things they had to prove was that we were doing this for some sort of economic gain. <laughs> if anyone see my bank account, and I think probably the FBI realized when they saw how I was living, I was sleeping on a couch, I think, at the time when they charged me, they realized this guy probably hasn't made much money out of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, doesn't seem like a profitable enterprise. So the prosecution voluntarily, voluntarily dropped those charges after the beginning of motion practice, basically, is what you're saying. They, they saw the writing on the wall. Yeah, I think they, they saw that they would have a hard time fighting our discovery requests because we sought discovery about any evidence they had relating to whether Smithfield was a lawful enterprise. Because in, in Utah, there is an animal cruelty law. There's also an animal cruelty exemption for livestock animals, but it only applies to livestock raised pursuant to customary animal husbandry standards. I know Marianne and probably a lot of your audience is familiar with these animal cruelty exemptions for livestock. And because Smithfield had themselves conceded that gestation crates are no longer a customary practice. In fact, they said they were gone. You know, we were making the argument, this is not a customary animal husbandry practice. So we need all the evidence you have, all the inspections you've taken of any animal cruelty, any violations of law that Smithfield has committed. And instead of providing us discovery, they decided, let's just drop the charges. <laughs> but it was because we, made, we filed motions requesting discovery and then motions to compel. Instead of actually providing us the documents they wanted, they just dropped the charges. Again, which tells you what this case is about. It's really about gagging evidence of animal cruelty, not about prosecuting supposed property theft. It's about preventing the public from seeing what Smithfield's doing. I think we all know that, Wayne. <laughs> like I do. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think almost everybody listening to this podcast is is sadly aware of that. And the people who aren't probably aren't listening. But but that doesn't mean it's not an important audience. And this also doesn't mean that just because charges were dropped that you're still not facing some serious charges. So let's focus on those because that's the problem at hand. And I understand there are still two charges pending. And can you tell us what they are and what they require? It's three charges, two counts of felony burglary and one count of theft. And the burglary counts all require entering a building without the consent of the owner and or remaining on the premises of a building without the consent of the owner with the intent to commit a theft. And, and the theft charge requires the removal of property with the purpose to deprive a permanently a, a property owner permanently of that property without their consent. And under Utah law, the definition of property also requires that the property be a thing of value. So, you know, one of the one of the live arguments in this case, and we're actually about to file our proposed jury instructions and, and have an argument about this is is whether the jury should require and should be required to be given an instruction that the thing that was removed, or in this case, the living being that was removed, must be something of value, which in, under Utah law, if we get that instruction, means that the piglets must have had some fair market value. It can't be some symbolic value. It can't be sentimental value. It has to be some sort of value in a commercial and fair market sense. So that means that if somebody stole something from me that didn't have any market value in in Utah, it wouldn't be a crime. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't. Be, it couldn't be a theft. Couldn't be a theft. Yeah. Okay. Could still be a trespass. You know, it still could be. You know, they could still bring a civil claim of some sort, maybe for conversion, but it, it wouldn't be a criminal theft. There is case law in other jurisdictions, not in Utah, suggesting a de minimis fair market value is enough. Um, but in our case, even de minimis, which means just like minimal, like maybe a penny, a, a tenth of a penny. It doesn't exist because it's pretty clear these animals were not only not worth anything, but they were actually a liability for the farm. And we just filed an expert report from a veterinarian documenting the many maladies these animals are facing and how dangerous that was, not just for these two Mitchell piglets, for all their litimates, for the mother pig, and for all the other pigs at the farm. Because when you have a pig suffering from a digestive disease or, or respiratory disease, I mean, all of us know this now, right? I mean, hopefully the entire world is educated that 
these infectious diseases are quite dangerous, not just the person who's suffering the disease, but everyone around them too. All right. So let's talk about this motion in Lemonade, which if, for people who are listening who aren't lawyers is just a, a motion to decide what evidence is going to be admissible at trial. And uh, that's how a lot of this this current litigation started. And this section they they filed it pursuant to was Utah Rule of Evidence Section 403, which is basic. I mean, you can tell us what that is and then maybe what they were arguing was the problem with the evidence that you wanted to, that they thought that you would want to bring at trial, which I assume they were assuming would include your Death Star video. And perhaps they were aware, pursuant to discovery, I don't know how discovery operates in a criminal case in Utah, perhaps they were aware of other evidence you were planning on bringing in, or maybe they just imagined that you were going to want to bring in evidence of what things looked like. And so they brought this motion. Can you tell us uh, what they were arguing? I did, yeah. So, well, interestingly, they actually filed two different motions. One was in May of 2020, and the other was, I think, in July or August of 2020. The first just dealt with animal conditions, period. And the second specifically addressed the Death Star video. But the, the arguments were basically the same. And you're, you're right, it was they used uh, Utah Rule of Evidence 403, and that's a pretty standard rule of evidence. I think there's a there's a, a federal version of it also. And basically just says that uh, evidence, even relevant evidence, can be excluded if it's prejudicial or if it confuses the jury, or I guess if it confuses the issues. Or I, and I, there's one other, when, what's the, you know what the third category is? I happen is, to have it in front of me, so I'm just going to read it. <laughs> Um, if its probative value is substantially outweighed by a danger or one or more of the following, unfair prejudice, confusing the issues, misleading the jury, undue delay, wasting time, or needlessly presenting cumulative evidence. I know they weren't arguing all of those, but we get the idea. Yeah, it was really just the first factor that was at play in this argument, unfair prejudice. Right. And then, I, and, you know, Janice McCandice, the prosecutor, would throw in like, oh, this is also confusing the jury. But I mean, like a lot of her arguments, she just didn't actually elaborate. She would just sort of use a particular buzzword. But I mean, what they were arguing is that animal, the evidence of the conditions is, is not relevant because the prosecution was assuming that we were going to try and bring it in uh, to use a necessity defense or as they called it an animal rescue defense. But their original argument was that Utah doesn't recognize a necessity defense for animals, which I think is, is, is false. It does. But they were saying that, that it didn't. And there's no other reason why this evidence would be relevant. And so that's number one. Number two, they were arguing that it's, it's prejudicial. And again, this is another uh, area where uh, Janice just sort of mentioned that it was prejudicial, but didn't really explain why. And I think she just didn't want to actually say that this is just horrible, horrible stuff that would shock people. And so interestingly, in the, in the Death Star motion, she pointed to things that Wayne said as an example of what's prejudicial, like Wayne's comment about we're entering into the heart of evil, for example, and you're describing what you were seeing when we were standing in front of the dumpster. Though That's what she was saying was, was, was prejudicial, which I think is a little bit disingenuous. And so because of that, she was saying, you know, there's no necessity defense. So all they're trying to do is introduce this for jury nullification. That was kind of her, their, the prosecution's favorite phrase throughout the briefing. And so it should be excluded. Can, can I just add two things about that? I, I think 
I, I, I respect your position on the necessity defense, and I know it's to our advantage to say the necessity defense exists in Utah and for animals. I think from a strictly positivistic, formalistic case law perspective, I see the prosecution's argument on this because in Utah, there are only statutory defenses, or at least there's a good argument. There's only statutory affirmative defenses to criminal charges. And because there's not a, a kind of a formalized statutory necessity defense that includes animals or even a necessity defense at all, just some dicta in a Supreme Court case in Utah, I, I understand the prosecution's argument on that. The weird thing is we never actually brought the necessity defense. We never noticed it. We never said we're raising the necessity defense. We had talked about this in public in many other cases, including Matt Johnson's case, my prior case in North Carolina, in which I was convicted in two felonies. But we never actually raised the defense in this case. Yet the prosecution kind of brought it up on their own behest and said, because there's no necessity to defense in Utah, they're not entitled to any of this evidence or any discovery. And that was the other part of the motion. It wasn't just that they were trying to gag us from presenting this evidence in court. They were trying to prevent us from getting access to documents that otherwise we should have a right to. You know, we should have a right to the prosecution's file, any evidence they accumulated of misconduct. They submitted a report to us, for example, that Smithfield had done that suggested there's some animal welfare issues. We never found out the basis for that report, any documents or evidence the veterinarian who did that inspection at Smithfield had done. And the fact that Smithfield's own inspection found some animal welfare issues is concerning because, you know, their own veterinarian who they're paying should be probably an unbiased source on whether there's animal welfare issues at Circle Four Farms. But the other point I want to make is that with respect to prejudices versus probative value, Rule 403, both at the state and federal level, is almost always invoked on behalf of a defendant. In fact, when we scoured the Utah case law, we had multiple lawyers, law students looking for every single case that cited Rule 403. We could not find, I think, a single case where Rule 403 was cited to exclude evidence that a defendant wanted to bring, much less the most probative evidence in a case, right? And the most probative evidence in a case. Well, for, for prejudice, I think for, for prejudice under 403, they, there was a case where the prosecution was trying to exclude evidence because it was confusing the jury by creating a trial within a trial. And they and they won in Utah. They did, yes. That was that okay. was okay. I could be wrong, but what what is clear is that the vast majority of the cases where you use Rule Four Three, it's because there's video footage of a murder or like a victim's body is desecrated, and you know the juror is going to seek someone to punish, basically. And it, it's not necessarily probative because the fact that someone was murdered doesn't show that the defendant actually murdered them. But virtually all the cases are cases where defendants seeking to use Four Three to exclude evidence, not the prosecution. And they usually lose. So there's there's a, a case that we cited where there's like a, a murder victim who was horribly, I think, assaulted. Their body was desecrated. Again, the victim's body is not necessarily probative of who actually did this. But even in a case like that, where there's a horrible moral victim who was mutilated and much more disturbing footage and photos than we would have been able to present in court for Circle Four, the defendant was not able to exclude that evidence. Yet notwithstanding that, the prosecution argued with that a lot of you know, empirical support or legal support that our footage of mother pigs in gestation crates, pigs in sores, pigs, you know, collapsed on the ground, piglets in dumpsters was so horrific that a juror just could not make a, a decision based on the evidence and the facts if they're exposed to this cruelty footage. So really quick. Yeah. As, as Wayne was suggesting, every single case that the prosecution cited regarding unfair prejudice was either a civil case or a case where a defendant was trying to exclude evidence. They did not cite a single case where 
Yeah, no, that I, I think that makes a lot of sense. It has got to also usually be the prejudice is going to be to the defendant, especially when you've got a videotape of people committing the crime. I am. I just want to take a step back, Wayne, <laughs> because I think that the necessity defense is pretty damn good. Like, I, I hate to see you abandoning it. I mean, there is that last. Uh, all right. Let me. I don't know whether I have the language, but you're, it's right that there is this statute, this statute which lays out the defenses of justification. But then there's this sort of weird catch-all at the end of it that you can bring a justification defense when the actor's conduct is justified under any other reason under the laws of this state, which is like, well, what the hell does that mean? I mean, I don't imagine anybody knows what it means. And then there is that one case, which I agree the the Sanders case, I think it is. And I hope I'm not losing our audience now because <laughs> I'm getting into details. Hang in there, everybody. That I agree, it's not a slam dunk. Most states have some sort of necessity defense, or as it's often called a lesser of two evils defense. And most in a lot of states, it's statutory. In many states, it's common law. And even if there isn't any law at the moment, this could be the case that would, that would create that law. And the fact that they insisted on calling it an animal rescue defense, which is nonsensical. I mean, in this particular instance, it is an animal rescue defense that happened to be the necessity here. But the defense is a well-known defense in law. And I think it applies so perfectly. So I hate to see you just saying it's a, it's a dead loser. And it seems to still be alive. Yeah, no, no, I, I I, didn't mean to say that I think it's a loser and that we weren't planning to bring it. I think we were planning to bring it. I just thought for the judge to rule on this before we had even noticed the defense or offered any argument on behalf of the defense was an improper procedure. Oh, and I can understand why from part of this has to do just kind of what your theory of law is. I'm going to back up even further and say, I said from a positivistic perspective, I understand why someone would say this is this is a law of the state of Utah, because there is this case, Dave versus Sanders, that analyzes the necessity of defense and basically says, we have no necessity of defense. And if we had it, it only applies to situations where it's clearly an absurd result. And I don't think this is a situation where the absurd results doctrine would apply. The absurd results doctrine is just a situation where a law is clearly applied to a context where the legislator would not have intended for it to be applied. And I don't think this is clearly one of those situations. I'm not a positivist. I think law is a question of a broader understanding of, of morality, of political culture. And I think law evolves over time. I believe in a living constitution as probably most of the people on this podcast and most of the listeners of this podcast believe. So I think that even if there's not a statute, a piece of paper that says there's a necessity defense that can be applied to animals, we are right legally to say that it exists and we have to fight for it even if some people don't agree because law there's this old adage from Klaus Fitz about war, that war is just plot politics by other means. I've always thought that law is just politics by other means. And I think part of what allows for social change is understanding that what law is, is a social process. It's a political process that includes us making arguments for necessity. And I think that's what we're trying to do in these cases. And I think if we win, it does set an important legal, but also an important political precedent for, for activists and people beyond activism who just think that animals like we think, are not things. They're living beings who should be protected. I, I wouldn't say I'm either a positivist or not, but I would say that you're absolutely right that these cases have an enormous political importance and that is their fundamental importance, but let's try to win it too. We got a little law on our side, let's use it. Because <laughs> winning it would be even better. 
And I'm not sure that I agree that this is not an absurd result, that uh, this rampant, rampant, vicious animal cruelty is, is, is allowed to exist. So, all right. We've gotten so far out of the my, my format of the timeline here that I'm not sure exactly how to go back. Because the necessity defense, as you mentioned, the court kind of disallowed it before you brought it, but then sort of maybe gave you permission to rebrief it. And, and you did at, so, at a later point. And we will get to that, I promise everybody. So we will go more into the necessity defense, which I is, think is just a beautiful defense. But there, it's not your only defense. You're also arguing that there's insufficient evidence. And this had to, has to do with that question of value and which you, you talked about as an element of these, these offenses. And, and your arguments is that bringing in all this evidence of what was happening at the quote unquote farm, as it's called, is, is very relevant to the fact that, that you want to be able to show they can't prove this element of the crime. And it's an element, it ultimately an element of all these crimes both the theft and the burglaries, because the burglary requires the theft, that these animals had had some value. So can you tell us a little bit more about how the evidence of the conditions, I mean, they are allowing you to bring in pictures of these particular piglets who, who, you, who you rescued. And um, I think they're allowing you to bring in the testimony of a person who, who's, who received them at a sanctuary shortly after they were um, evacuated from Smithfield. But in addition, you want to show what was happening at large. And why is that relevant to ha- to the fact that, that, as you're saying, these pigs not only had no value, they were probably worth less than nothing because in order to save them, you would have to spend a lot of money. You know, I think Tristan Rosenberg, our expert veterinarian, put it best in her affidavit when we filed her motion challenging uh, the judge's ruling on this. But imagine you're trying to estimate the value of even a chair from a factory. You have to know something about the factory to understand the value of the chair, right? If the factory is a piece of junk factory, everything's falling apart, and the workers are kicking the chairs around, the chairs are all broken, even if this particular chair looks like it's of reasonable quality, there's probably some things underneath the the covers, you know, the the screws aren't quite working properly, the wood quality isn't quite good. And I'm using this metaphor not because I think a chair is a pig, because a pig obviously much more valuable than a chair and has intrinsic value that a chair doesn't, but... In many ways, it's even more important to understand the broader context in which an animal's been living because unlike a chair, a pig can face all sorts of unseen infections and diseases that are not visible just from physical inspection immediately. And if you don't know how the mother was, what the other piglets are suffering, what diseases were were unfolding in the farm, what the mortality rate is in the farm is, you really can't get a sense of how valuable a pig is. And so we made the argument that it's impossible for us to really prove the value of the pig without looking at the broader context of the farm in which this pig was raised. The judge honestly didn't seem to really engage with these arguments very thoroughly, both in oral argument and in his written opinion. His written opinion is just, you know, it's like a two paragraph order. That was essentially what the prosecution requested and even included an additional provision that wasn't requested by the prosecution that we couldn't present evidence of animal cruelty or the conditions of the animals. We also couldn't present evidence about our motive, which is strange and bizarre and as far as I can tell, unprecedented. I think the reason is because it's the, the argument is so straightforward. And the judge, even before we got into argument at our first hearing on this issue, he made very clear to us that he was not going to allow this case to be, in his words, a referendum on the swine industry. And that's not really his job. His job is not to be defense lawyer for the swine industry and prevent evidence from being presented in this courtroom that is is negative towards the swine industry, but he made clear to us from day one that he didn't want any evidence that was critical or negative towards the swine industry to be part of this case. 
And by, by the way, maybe as a, a little bit of context that might be helpful is, as I said, they, they filed those two motions in limine in 2020. We had the oral argument on in, in February of 2022, so about six months ago. And the oral argument, the judge said, I'm granting the motions. And so like the Death Star video will not be shown. But as you said, Marion, still images can be shown. And he specifically said, the defense should be able to present evidence about the value of just these two particular pigs. And then so after that, that's when we submitted our, our motion for reconsideration, arguing that, no, we should be able to bring in additional evidence about the general conditions that might still be probative about the, the value of these two, two piglets. And again, as Wayne said, that he didn't engage with that at all. He just rejected it. And then in the written order said that with respect to the first motion in limine, that we, we couldn't talk about any animal conditions. And we objected to that. That language came from the prosecution. Um, and then we, re we objected to it and said, no, there has to be a carve out for these two particular piglets. Judge ignored it, signed the order. So we, it was confusing because that was just very inconsistent with the oral ruling. And we, we didn't, we still don't know exactly what's going to happen at trial. But as you said, Marianne, very recently, the judge indicated that he's going to let Faith Davis testify because she's the one who received the, the piglets and that her testimony about the condition of the two of just the two piglets is going to be permitted. So that's that's a positive in indication that we can still talk about the, the two individual piglets. At least that. I mean, that would have to be. What you were talking about before, Wayne, that it's so unprecedented that, like completely unprecedented, where the evidence is eliminated be that is showing exactly how the crime was committed and the violence that it, it's being eliminated on behalf of the prosecution rather than behalf of the, the defense. But their argument, which I think is an ironic argument, is that you all you are seeking here is jury nullification. Basically, their argument is the jury's going to be so horrified by what Smithfield is doing that they'll just throw the law aside and acquit you. It, it's a foul argument, but is there something to it? I mean, could that happen? Jury nullification is a right that every jury has in the United States of America. It's, it's not wrong or illegal to nullify. On the other hand, lawyers are not allowed to argue for it. And judges, rightly or wrongly, can instruct lawyers to not ask for nullification. My view of the legal system is, is a little more nuanced. I think that there's almost always a way for a jury to look at the elements of a civil or criminal case and get to the outcome they want. This is kind of actually something Dick Posner told me a long time ago. He was my law professor when I was in law school. He's a very famous federal judge. And he said this, he, I mean, he's a strange judge because he admits things that most judges don't admit. And what he said to me was, you know, what, what happens in court cases, honestly, is that jurors and judges decide what they think the right moral outcome is, and then they use the law to get there. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth to that. So for example, in our case, if a juror decides the right moral outcome is people shouldn't go to prison for trying to take these two sick baby pigs to the vet, maybe the legal rationale for doing so is that the piglets didn't have value and they don't need to nullify because they can just look at the elements themselves and say, you know, one of these elements just hasn't been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but the outcome is the same either way. So I'm going to be representing myself. I cannot argue for nullification in this particular case. I do think nullification is a useful doctrine for us to have in our legal system. And I certainly wouldn't fault a juror for nullifying, and no one should, because it is a right that every juror has. But I think there are very compelling arguments in this case to acquit the two defendants that don't require nullification. And we've never argued for nullification 
in our papers and our argument in this case. And I also, I mean, I think it, nullification would be one way for the jury to to make the points you're talking about. And the other way would be to find for a necessity defense, which is such a great defense. And it's just one of my favorite defenses within the law. All right. So the, all of this happened in Beaver County, which is where this Death Star farm is, Circle Four. And then uh, we're just going to take a moment out to talk about the change of venue. I mean, you it's, you never get a change of venue. So how did that happen? And where are you now? We were very much prepared to go to trial in Beaver, and we had, I think, close to 200 people signed up to court support um, in Beaver County. And then a group of folks went to Beaver on Pioneer Day, which is a a holiday in the state of Utah, just to do outreach and, and talk to folks. And as was popularized in a very popular uh, YouTube, uh, on a very popular YouTube channel called Audit the Audit, they had a very strange and disturbing experience with law enforcement, where basically the three three cops came up to them and basically just told them point blank, you can't be here talking about this in our community. They said your company had a hand in shutting down Smithfield, which I, I don't think is, I don't think is a fair characterization of the facts at all. I think Smithfield shut down for business reasons and for increased regulation in California. The fact that I, I honestly think it's not an unfair characterization. I think we probably put more public pressure on Smithfield than anyone else, especially in the state of California over the last five years. And things are things don't happen for just one reason. Yeah, uh, you that's know, fair. like that's fair. But um, yeah, but but so anyway, so I mean, the cops basically told them you have to leave, and then they stated that you're going to be killed by people in the town which I, I don't know if that was actually a reflection of anything that anyone had said or if it was a threat from the officers. I think we don't know. And we, we have set, DFC and the individual activists in the Utah Animal Rights Coalition are now suing Beaver County over that incident. Can I just add, John, I, I think the declaration that was submitted just in the last couple of days suggests that they did have some actual evidence of threats because the declaration signed by this gentleman, I don't remember his name, I spoke about that on the podcast, I believe, and one of one of his points was that that they made him so mad that his wife was afraid he was going to become violent. That was his idea of a threat of violence. That like, what? Like, I, that's the most bizarre argument I have ever it's heard. So bizarre. <laughs> they, they, I was so mad at them for what they believed that I I wanted to hit them, and so that so that meant there was a threat of violence in my town. And just to be clear, this is a threat of violence by a, a passerby, by a resident of Beaver County against animal rights activists, not vice versa. So, because they've, they've made a lot of allegations against animal rights activists in the county that we're intimidating or harassing local CUNY members. Well, I don't want to go too far afield on that. Perhaps we'll have you on again to discuss that lawsuit when it's a little further along, because it's certainly a fascinating lawsuit. Let me just add one other factual detail. It, it wasn't just that officers did this. It was the elected sheriff of the entire county who walked up to a young woman named Ali Morikawa, who was sitting at a table. They had actually gotten prior consent to set up a table on a public sidewalk for Pioneer Day. She was just sitting there passively. She was not approaching anyone. And the the elected sheriff came up to her within a few inches of her face, screamed at her, you are going to be killed, and I'm not going to do anything about it. And she, she felt so threatened that she immediately fled the table, went to her car, and cried for the rest of the time she was there. Because there was a large man with a gun who said, you are going to be killed. And she thought this is a... It's like a bad movie. I mean... It, it is like it, a bad movie. And let me just say this in defense of Cameron Noel, because I've talked to Cam Noel. He's the elected sheriff in, in Beaver County. 
I, I actually think he's a good guy, even though he said this and did this. I think what he did was unconstitutional. They shouldn't have charged Curtis. They sure, certainly shouldn't have said to Allie, just for sitting there at a table, that she was going to be killed. You should be protecting these people, not threatening them. But I think Cam Noel is so invested in this company. And just to give you a sense of how embedded law enforcement is with Smithfield, <laughs> I think it was the last time we were there, uh, we did kind of a little march around Circle Four Farms on public streets. These are all, you know, public streets that everyone's entitled to walk on. And one of the deputies, deputies whispered to me that we're only allowing you to do this because Smithfield told us. And I was like, wait a minute, you're not security for Smithfield. You're, you're, you're a deputy in the Beaver County Sheriff's Office. You're sworn to defend the Constitution, not Smithfield Foods. But even the deputies themselves, the culture of the police department was so invested in this company because one out of four employees in the company work for Smithfield. It is by far the largest business and they have tendrils everywhere that they saw their, their legal duty, their professional obligation as to Smithfield and not to defend the constitution, not to protect local people, certainly not to protect outsiders in the exercise of our constitutional rights. And, and that if, if you're in that culture, which Cam Noel is in that culture, I can understand why he saw someone merely sitting there at the table leafleting about Smithfield as a dire threat to his role as a sheriff, because if his job is to protect Smithfield, his job is being threatened by by someone standing there handing out leaflets about Smithfield. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it really is like some old time movie of the, the, you know, it's a very small place, right? Beaver County with a small population and as dreadful as Smithfield is, it's kind of the name of the game. Yeah, they're controlled by Smithfield. They don't have a choice. All right, can we get back to the case? All right, because I have a lot more questions. Next comes a motion, a new motion, and this one brought by you, a new motion eliminate brought by you instead of um, by the prosecution. And again, it, it, it is addressing a few different things, the same thing perhaps in different contexts, and that's the customary farming exemption, but I particularly like to address it, I mentioned this to John earlier, in, in the context of the necessity defense. And I'd like to revisit, we, we talked before about State versus Sanders, which is this case that arguably eliminated the necessity defense. But I think, as you pointed out, John, so that could be, it's really dicta by, because, um, it didn't control the outcome of that case. And I would just like to, um, because not everybody knows what the necessity defense is, I'd like to reiterate what State v. Sanders said about what are the elements of the defense. And I'll just read them out unless one of you want to. Um, that the defendant acted with intent to avoid the greater harm. Check. Honestly and reasonably believed that the act was necessary to avoid the greater harm. Check. I'm adding the checks, folks. <laughs> No alternative course of action existed to avoid the imminent harm, that's for sure. Successfully avoided the greater harm. I don't know why that's an, that's why a, a, an element, because it seems ridiculous. If you're not successful, you still should be able to have the defense. But you did successfully avoid the greater harm as it, as it applied to those two piglets who are the subject of this, of this prosecution. And you were not personally at fault in creating the situation. Well, that sure is true. So, all right, we don't know whether Sanders is good law. We have some reasons to think that maybe it isn't, but it's possible that it is. Another element that is frequently an element in other states, but not in Sanders, is that the activity that you're trying to address is illegal. And that would certainly strengthen the case if we could show that what Smithfield was doing to the piglets was actually illegal, was illegal cruelty. And you have made the argument 
that regardless of the customary farming practice exemption, well, this wasn't customary anymore because Smithfield had committed to not using gestation crates and presumably to cleaning up its act regarding the piglets. But even if it were, you and, and you devote a good deal of this motion to arguing that the customary farming practice exemption is actually um, unconstitutional. Can you just tell us a little bit about that that argument? We need three different arguments uh, to attack the constitutionality of that livestock exemption, which, um, by the way, exists, I think, in 37 out of 50 states. So it's very it's very common. It's the kind of the majority rule, I guess. But we made three arguments against it. The first is it's it constitutes an unconstitutional delegation of lawmaking authority because it's a, it's a case where the the legislature is essentially letting the industry decide what is and is not animal cruelty. And there's very good case law on the fact that the, the legislature cannot delegate rulemaking authority, sometimes even to other branches of, of government. And here, it's delegating lawmaking authority not only to a non-governmental entity, but a, a non-governmental entity that completely tries to shield itself from the public and is, is completely undemocratic. Uh, so that was the first argument we made. Uh, the second is just that it's vague. So the, the statute doesn't say what a customary farming practice is or what traditional animal husbandry is at all. There's no, it provides zero guidance. And so it fails for it, it, the constitutional requirement that statutes uh, um, are, are clear enough to be enforced. And then the third was an equal protection argument that this uh, essentially prejudices people who are trying to rescue, say, pigs, while at, the, while at the same time rewarding people who are rescuing dogs and cats who are protected by the law. And our argument is there's no moral distinction at all here. And we, we included evidence of the fact that pigs are just as, if not more intelligent than dogs in, on, in a host of, of different ways. So those are basically the three arguments that we made. And very interestingly, the judge stated in, in his oral ruling that there are, it, it does look like, there are serious constitutional problems with this livestock exemption. But then for reasons that he did not make clear, he just said, I'm, I'm not going to rule on this and just sort of threw up his hands. And that was that. I don't remember him actually talking about standing. I'd have to look back at the. There was definitely a ruling on standing. And I, it is very hard to imagine. I mean, I've been thinking about these laws for a long time. And it's very hard to imagine a way to get them into court. But I'll tell you, I mean, your standing here, it seems to me, is the crux of your necessity defense or or is a very important element of your necessity defense. If you can argue, because it, it really helps a necessity defense if you can argue that the person who was perpetrating uh, the whatever you were trying to fix was actually committing a crime at the time. That makes it, it's not, may not be necessary, but that's a much stronger argument. So, how could you bring a necessity defense if you can't make this argument that what they were doing was illegal? And how can you make that argument if you don't have standing to attack the very exemption on which they're relying to say, no, it was fine. It was legal. We were exempt from that law. So I think it's such a great argument. I, I can't imagine another way to get a customary farming practice exemption into court. Oh, another thing that I thought was interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, the court said you had no standing. And I think that deprives you of the ability to bring your defense. But the court seemed to think 
that this was just a reiteration of your argument that you were entitled to a necessity defense, and then that that had already been ruled on. But in that ruling, which was very early in the case in another county, in another courtroom, that court has said, you can, okay, your your lawyer asked, can we rebrief this? And the court said, because the court had just precipitously, without it being properly argued, ruled that you couldn't bring the defense. And 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 the court said, gave you permission to rebrief it. And here you are rebriefing it. And and the court said, no, you are, this was already decided. So it all seems really troubling to me. I want you to bring that necessity defense. We're definitely planning to still bring in, and if nothing else, to preserve a right to appeal. So we're going to proffer the evidence and say this is what we're trying to argue. And sure, the judge's prior rulings, it'll be denied again. But you're right. I mean, it's an important defense, and it's a defense worth fighting for. And if we're able to prevail on the defense, I think we would have had much stronger grounds from a standing perspective to challenge the, the constitutionality and Totally. The legitimacy of this animal cruelty exemption. Right. I was very surprised that the judge seemed to, it seemed to me, I don't even recall why, it could be just because I find this argument the most persuasive. I thought the non-delegation argument seemed to be the most compelling one to the judge. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the federal case law on this and the Utah Constitution is very similar to the federal Constitution in that it, it has enumerated powers for the various branches of government and the legislature uh-huh. has the power to write laws. Not Smithfield. <laughs> you know, a foreign corporation owned by a Chinese billionaire does not is not delegated the power under the Utah or federal constitution to write the laws of the United States of America, but the, in the, under the non-delegation law, there there are delegations of power that are authorized. But even when you delegate power, there has to be some intelligible principle, and the intelligible principle cannot be whatever the industry wants. That's right. not an, that's the opposite of an intelligible principle. That is an unintelligible principle, right? That's just the industry gets to decide whatever the heck they want to do. So if we can find the proper plane of standing, I think this judge, to the extent is. His opinion is representative of how another conservative judge might hear this. Is persuaded, and I think honestly, this is an argument that on the right and the left, people are on on, on all in all walks of life are increasingly receptive to. There's a lot of right wing folks who are concerned, right wing judges who are concerned about accumulation of corporate power and especially foreign influence. You know, a corporation like Smithfield can decide what our criminal laws are. That's going to be concerning to Tucker Carlson, not just animal rights activists in Berkeley. So I think it's an argument that needs to be brought. I absolutely agree with you. I think it's a a huge opportunity to bring it. And even though the court has so far not permitted you to uh, use this, I, I hope that that decision changes in the course of this trial. And if not, and if unfortunately there is a conviction, which I certainly hope there is not, I hope it, it's something that you can bring on appeal because I think it's very powerful. It's very hard to imagine another way of getting this, getting a lot of these issues into court. I mean, that's what's so powerful about what you and other DXC defendants are doing is that there's absolutely no other way to ar- make these arguments unless somebody is willing to put themselves at risk, at enormous risk. And all right, before I let you go, even though I've kept you for a long time, just a few other things. I have not read the papers on any of these issues because there's a lot of issues floating around in your case, but I just wanted to go through of them. Apparently, um, there is stuff about the jury having to be anonymous and the courtroom being closed. Can you talk a little bit about that? The judge kind of on his own brought up concerns about about whether the juror, jury could be harassed. Funnily enough, he, in, on three separate occasions, the judge brought up the fact that I had requested access to the the juror uh, spreadsheet that our, um, that our attorneys had circulated. And I mean, it was sort of a silly move on my part. I mean, I was doing it in, in, a, in my capacity as a legal team member, and I, um, I thought that we had permission 
um, since it was being sent to our attorneys to do that. But then the judge, you know, at first just didn't know who it was and thought it was just a totally random person. <laughs> but he brought it up on three different occasions and the prosecutor cited it, never actually explained what the relevance is or how it, you know, created any risk to the jurors. But anyway, the case law uh, says that juror anon anonymity um, is extremely rare and it because it creates a high risk of prejudice to the defendants and to the burden of proof um, and the presumption of, of innocence. It's uh, it's a relatively new thing. It was used, I think, for the first time in the 1970s, Wayne, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, um, during organized crime prosecutions where people were going after the mafia and there were very real concerns that jurors could be threatened or killed. And that's why that exists. There's a case in Utah about this um, called State v. Ross, and it identifies, I think, five different factors that, you know, concerning whether jurors should be anonymized. And for, you know, it, it includes stuff like whether there's a threat to, to jurors. And the one that arguably applies, uh, that the judge thinks applies, is whether is just the amount of press coverage and whether the jurors might end up having their names in the paper. And I mean, in our case, in DXC's, John, can I clarify? It's not just Sorry. media coverage in that factor. It's media coverage that suggests that jurors will be exposed to intimidation or harassment or violence. Right. Right. It's not exactly. just media coverage alone. And that, that right. was the, the, the right. angle yeah, that, that yeah, was bizarre. That's, yeah, yeah. that's very important because it can't just be media coverage. It has to be that exposes them to intimidation or harassment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very true. And which they, 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 there's no history, like, like DXC has no history of violence or intimidation against anyone. And there's no history of juror, you know, we've been in a number of cases now, and there's zero history of any juror ever ending up in the press or ever being harassed or intimidated in the press. So there's just, it, it, this is a totally unprecedented move, and I think reflects just a general bias against activism that the, the court has, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel it's highly prejudicial. If I was on a jury and, and I was told that I would be expected to remain anonymous, I would be scared. I would think, why? So I think it's very prejudicial. Yeah, I just want to say one other thing about that. My family came from China where they don't have public justice. And I'll just give an example. And in Taiwan, too. Taiwan was a dictatorship. We think of Taiwan positively now. Taiwan was not a democratic country until the 1990s. And when, when my family was growing up, we had a next door neighbor, my, my parents, who just disappeared one day because he was thought to be conspiring with the communist government. And no one knows what happened to him. And he just disappeared. Yeah, that's the way things happen in other countries. But in our country, especially when you're accused of a crime, it's supposed to happen in public. And the people convicted, you're supposed to know who they are. It, it doesn't mean you get to harass them, obviously, intimidate them. But the idea that you can be convicted and sitting in a prison, you don't even know who the heck sent you to prison. You don't know who the judge is, the prosecutor is. You don't know who the juries are. And there already are protections for jurors. You cannot intimidate jurors. There are laws that protect jurors. If anyone does that, that's a crime. The jurors' names are not publicly released to anyone other than the defendants and the legal team until after the trial. But the notion that I don't even get to know the people who might be sending me to prison is profoundly inconsistent with the ideas in the American Constitution about yeah. public justice. So yeah. this is not just about some tactical or, or prejudicial issue in one court case. This is about one of the most fundamental principles of the American democratic system, which is justice is public. And they are also closing the courtroom. Is that correct? Or did I get that right? For the same right. reasons, because of a fear of intimidation or harassment. They could start out, and if there was, if there, if people caused a ruckus and and there was, there were problems, they could close it then. But to just start off closing the courtroom seems un unbelievable to me. 
I, we had talked about the um, the person who received the piglets was was is going to be allowed to testify as to the condition of the piglets when they arrived. But are there any other defense witnesses, proposed defense witnesses who are going to be limited? Um, I mean, technically, well, I'm 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 a defense witness, and I mean, technically, I'm subject to the order that to the judge's April sixth written order about any conditions of the animals. But again, the judge said that the defense can talk about the conditions of the animals, and I I can I can certainly talk about that, and I can talk about our intent with respect to the same. The defense hasn't been limited in 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 the witnesses it's going to be allowed to bring. Well, the the order does specifically talk about the witnesses too. We just have orders. We don't have a lot of clarity about what the orders say, but they do apply to witnesses. I mean, I would say the most severe limitation is we actually were attempting to subpoena the CEO of Costco, and not just as a gimmick. And I think the judge perceived it as a gimmick just because it's like, okay, what does this really powerful, influential person have to do with this case? But because he is probably the only industry representative I talked to about this investigation, our plans to investigate Costco's supply chain before we actually did it. And so his his evidence and testimony is highly probative of what I actually intended to do, what we actually intended to do. Because John and Paul and I can testify as to what our intent was, but the jury's going to obviously be biased and think that we're going to say whatever we need to do to be acquitted. But the Costco CEO interacted with me on multiple occasions because we had done prior investigations at Costco that had been in the New York Times. And I corresponded and he wrote back to me and, and explained why he didn't care about you know what we were finding. And we are not going to be able to present any of that evidence that suggests that our concern here was not an attempt to blackmail Costco or Smithfield, certainly not an attempt to steal from them anything of value. Our intent was merely to point out fraud and abuse in their supply chain. And we will not be able to present that evidence because Power has a way of protecting itself. I mean, that's that's the way I am interpreting it. Another issue that I just wanted to run run through was regarding your decision to represent yourself. What brought you to make that decision? And and have you been granted that uh, people are generally allowed to represent themselves if they really want to? But uh, but tell us why. Our motion for me to represent myself and Paul to have counsel was granted very begrudgingly, and the reason to do this is because. This is not a traditional criminal defense case. In a traditional criminal defense case, I think you're trying to sow doubt in the jury, and that's what traditional criminal defense lawyers do. You're trying to suggest, oh, this person wasn't there that night, he has an alibi, or you know, he didn't actually commit the crime. We don't believe we committed a crime, but we believe that the reason we were not guilty of the crime that's being charged is because of what was in our, our minds and our hearts, not because of the physical actions we took. And to convince a jury of that, they have to understand me. They have to understand us. They have to make a decision of conscience and they have to be inspired to believe what we say is true. And I think the best way to do that is for at least one of the defendants to speak directly to the jury. So I'm a board member of the Climate Defense Project, an amazing group of climate defense lawyers who have represented activists across the country. And they've tried this strategy in a number of uh, climate disobedience cases and had some success. And it's similar fact patterns where someone is engaged in actions that some industry or prosecutor believes are illegal. The defendants believe that what they're doing is at worst civil disobedience, but but justified under what's called the climate necessity defense. And you know the theory behind it, and I think this is correct, is that the best way to convince a juror that this is necessary and that these people are people of good intent is for them to hear directly from the people who did the things. 
I love the climate defense project and I think their use of the, the necessity defense, which you may have guessed I also love, is powerful. And I, I think a much harder case to make than, than yours when there was clearly a law protecting those innocent creatures who were in your hands. So it's a further reach between shutting down a pipeline and saving the planet. There's a completely direct pipeline from picking up that, that piglet and leaving that facility to uh, saving that pig. I agree. And interestingly, I, the environmental love- lawyers I've talked to agree with that, too. They think from a strictly legal perspective, we should have a stronger defense because there is like an exigent, urgent need. There's like a literally a dying creature in our arms. Right. Well, with climate necessity, it's like more of a long term political issue. And one of the elements of the necessity of defense in most states is that there's no alternative course of action. You have to do something right here and right now. The problem is animal rights just is not as politically powerful as the environmental movement. So we have the Washington Supreme rule recently that the climate necessity defense is a little bit under defense. We haven't had a ruling like that for animal rights. And this is just an example of how the courts are political bodies that are rightly or wrongly very influenced by the political culture of the time we're living in. Right now, we're just not quite to the point yet where a court is ready or willing to announce that animals are protected as legal persons under the necessity defense. I don't think they have to be legal persons under the necessity defense. But they are always able to be victims of a crime. Maybe not considered victims, but still subjects of a crime. You are preventing a crime, whether the victim is a person or not. And all right, I'll stop trying to like win your win your case for you. And um, <laughs> no, I love it. Yeah, and I wish you could be there with us in court, Marianne. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. Anything else you wanted to talk about before I let you go? No, just, I mean, I'd, I'd say just appreciate your support, Marianne. You know, I, I know I've been yeah. on the podcast before. And I know, but I, I appreciate the support and I appreciate the support of everyone listening to the podcast. Well, I, well, this case I really isn't ultimately about me and Paul. It's about Lily and Lizzie. Nicely said. And yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of, of a lot of the work. I won't say I'm a fan of everything, but I'm a fan of a lot of the work that DXC is doing and other people who are using the law and putting themselves at risk to uh, save animals. So I wish you the very best of luck and and we will be in touch and we'll all be paying attention to what's happening in Utah. And if I could take a moment, I'll just plug my blog and podcast. Which Please. If you want to follow the trial and my personal journey over the next few weeks, um, two weeks from now, I'm heading to Utah and may not be back for quite some time, depending on how things go in court. But if you want to follow my journey, my blog is called The Simple Heart on Substack and the podcast is released on that blog. But it's, it used to be called The Green Pell. We wanted to make it a little more positive and a little less conspiratorial, so we're calling it Everybody Wing Chunk tonight. But yeah, just go to the Simple Heart Substack, and you'll be able to follow what's unfolding in Utah over the next few weeks. Yeah, people absolutely do that. Thanks so much for joining me, Wayne, John. Thank you so much, Marianne. Really appreciate the support. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We will be back next month with a new show. Thank you so much to Wayne and John for taking the time out of their insane schedules to tell us about the case. And and also thank you to Vicki Beachler and Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for their help in producing the podcast. If you are not already a subscriber, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review there or on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And thank you so much for tuning in.